You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Adam Mitzner. Adam is the critically acclaimed Amazon Charts best-selling author of Dead Certain, Never Goodbye, and The Best Friend in the Broden, Broden Legal Series, as well as standalone thrillers, A Conflict of Interest, A Case of Redemption, Losing Faith, The Girl from Home, A Matter of Will, and The Perfect Marriage. He joins me today on Uncorking a Story to talk about his latest novel, Love, Betrayal, Murder. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Adam. Thanks, Mike. Very glad to be here. Happy to have you. Adam, I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin? I think it has two beginnings. The first one was when I was in law school and everybody I knew was reading The Firm. Maybe it was a year after I got out of law school. And we all thought that the plot of that kind of tracked our own experience about being recruited by these law firms and not truly understanding why they were offering to pay so much money for people who'd never held the job before. And then... I remember saying to my law school roommate at the time, you know, I could write something like this. And he laughed. And, and then I did nothing. And so the real story starts 20 years later when I turned 40 and I decided, okay, I think I'm going to try to write it up. And that's where the story begins. Yeah, that, that book, The Firm, I remember reading, you know, way back when. What was it? Berdini, Lambert, and Locke, Mitch McDeer. You know, it's, I think, was that John Grissom's first book? I can't remember. It was his second book, but Time to Kill was his first, but nobody bought or read A Time to Kill. And I remember reading some story that after he published A Time to Kill, you know, he bought 5,000 copies of the first edition and he would drive it around to bookstores to see if they would take it and nobody would. And then when he became John Grisham, he hit 5,000 copies of first editions of his first book in his garage. And now all of a sudden they were worth quite a bit of money. There you go. It's an investment that paid off, perhaps unexpectedly. But, you know, I remember reading those books. They were good. So what was your, what was, you know, the, that first book you wrote? What was it like kind of going through that process for the first time? So the funny thing is, and I think a lot of readers don't fully appreciate this. The first book I wrote was the first book I published, right? So the first book I wrote had a lot of ups and downs. So, you know, I'm 
sitting alone, writing this book without any kind of formal training about writing at all and wondering if I'm ever going to be able to, you know, get the word count, right? Like that was my main concern. Can I write 300 pages? I'd never written anything more than 25 pages before. And those were legal briefs. So I was put in touch with somebody who put me in touch with somebody who put me in touch with somebody who might be able to edit. And when I was done with that first manuscript, I found an agent that he loved it and then he couldn't sell it. And, and so he said, you know, tried, what else do you have? And I had nothing. And so I wrote something else, but you know, that took two years. And then I gave that to him and he said, yeah, I don't like this at all. And he said, what I liked about your first book was that, you know, you were in a world where you really knew. And in your second book, I'm not getting that. And so then I wrote what became a conflict of interest. And, um, and he was able to sell that. There you go. So just like third time at bat, really. Yeah. And I remember the funny thing, too, is I remember when I finished a conflict of interest, thinking it was pretty good, better than the first two efforts that I made. But also thinking that if it didn't sell, I don't know if I could write another book. And I said it not because, like, what's the point? I said it more like, do I even have another story? Like, I didn't think I had one. Now I have three. Can I even do this again? And, you know, now I'm, this is my 10th book, Love, Betrayal, Murder. And, you know, when there have been one or two along the way that weren't published yet. So, you know, you never know how many stories you have in you. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you got to trust that they're going to come to you at some point in time. How did you deal with the, you know, any feelings of discouragement? You know, the kind of going back to those first two times at bat. How'd you deal with that? So, you know, I think that one of the things that has made my writing career both very rewarding and dealing with rejection is that it's not my day job. And so, you know, I tell you that I was surprised when I got an agent. You know, I was surprised when people said, we're going to pass, but we liked it, you know, and all that kind of kept me going. And, you know, and I think I would be writing even if it was just to be put in my drawer later. And so that helped. You know, I also tell people who are telling me, well, I'm trying to write a novel, that the line between being a published author and trying to write a novel is really thin, you know. I remember begging my friends to read the manuscript of the first couple of efforts because I wanted someone to read it. And now, you know, people I don't know email me saying, you know, could I read it in draft and offer comments? And like, you know, it's not like the writing is all that much better now than it was then. It's just that now people think, oh, I want to be part of this. And that's great. But, you know, my job in the right is the writing. And so, you know, I think that being a practicing lawyer helps you in this regard too, I think. You know, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose and you can't really judge yourself based on that. What you have to judge yourself on is, you know, am I doing my best? Because sometimes you lose and, you know, it's like being an athlete. You, you just can't win all the time. And so some people don't like the ball. Right. And that's okay. Now you're mentioning, you know, hearing back, you know, we're going to pass, but we like the book. You know, I, I don't think a lot of people appreciate how that is actually high praise coming from a literary agency is most of the time. And I'm, well, I'm speaking from my own personal experience. 
All you get is form letters back saying, this isn't a right fit for us. Good luck. Bye-bye. Yeah, I had somebody who said, can you rework it? And, and I was sure they were going to buy it, right? Because they made me rework it. And I reworked it and they said, thanks, but still pass. And in fact, you know, the biggest sort of rejection that I felt was when my agent said to the second book, I'm not going to send it out. And because then at least like I was so, you know, lucky, but I didn't realize it. Like got an agent, the first guy who read my manuscript said he'd represent me. And then he sent it out and he couldn't sell it, but a bunch of people were interested. And I figured, yeah, second time, like you, you can't knock over, you know, refrigerator with one push. And when he said no, and I said, not even going to try. And he said, you know, you got a, I got a bunch of people who are really interested in you. If I show them this, I'm afraid they're not going to read the next one. And I know enough to know they're not going to buy this. And yeah, he turned out to be right, but that was discouraging. Yeah. You know, the idea, okay, it was a waste of my time. But of course it wasn't because I learned things in that process too. And so it's all good in the end, I guess. That's right. I mean, even those, you know, quote unquote failures lead to, you know, they put you on a path of something greater, which is what it sounds like happened for you. Yep. Yeah. Plus, I think that, you know, the writing part has to be something you really like, because then, you know, when I'm done, I don't, I like getting feedback that makes the book better, but feedback like, yeah, just didn't like it. Well, there's nothing I can do with it. Right. And I'm done pretty written. And so I wish, but okay. Uh, so it's the writing that, that interests me. And so, you know, I keep doing that. Well, speaking of writing, what can you share with us about Love, Betrayal, Murder? So it is a book I'm really happy with that's been getting pretty good reviews and it takes place in a large New York City law firm, like a lot of my books do. And it deals with the Me Too movement at a time when it was just starting out. And there are two trials and, of course, love, betrayal, murder. But the biggest part about it to me is it's a story about the gradations of truth and how truth can be a malleable topic and how different people see truth differently. So that's the big thematic thing. And then, like I said, plot-wise, it's a legal thriller with the backdrop of a New York City law firm. Yeah. I find I've done 270 episodes of this show. I think you're number 270. I would say a quarter of them have been with lawyers or former lawyers who used to make their living practicing law. And now they're, you know, fiction authors or doing something a little bit differently. And I think part of it is, look, there's a great overlap there. As an attorney, you spend a lot of time writing. So there, that's part of it. Written communication is part of the game. But there's also like this, just the experience of working in big or white shoe law firms that, that just is fertile ground for creativity. Do you think there's something there? I do. I mean, I think that certainly, you know, I think writing is a two- Prong skill, right? There's the discipline of coming up with the words and being coherent. And that is certainly a skill you get by being a lawyer. And then there's the story part of it, you know, coming up with something that is, is rich, characters that are relatable and yet not boring, not your regular 
close. And one of the things that I saw in my legal practice is, you know, your clients are often people in this extreme situation, you know, the thing that they, you know, hope to God never happens to you, right? Like you're potentially going to be criminally indicted or go to jail or be wiped out financially. And you see the types of people who put themselves in that position, first of all, right? Because that's like most people don't get that close to that line. Sometimes it's not their fault that they're that close to the line, but a lot of the times, you know, they have some justification for why what they did was okay, but they knew that they were flirting with danger. And then how they deal with that kind of stress and pressure. And so I think that makes for great storytelling. And that's the part, you know, people always ask me, do you use your cases and your writing? And the answer to that is no. But do I use the people that I've met in my writing? Yeah. All the, that's really the meat of it, is how people deal with these issues. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah, again, fertile ground. Just the characters, I imagine, that you get to meet. So it sounds like you're sort of on the, I would say, litigator side of things. But what uh, you're in a courtroom, I imagine, versus writing contracts all day. Yeah. So I'm a trial lawyer, I'm a litigator. I don't do pretty much any criminal defense work, even though my books, that's what they're about. But I did one, one time in my career. But yeah, I'm in court. I'm before judges. I try cases from time to time. You know, not as many as people who watch Law and Order tend to think lawyers do. But, but yeah, so I'm pretty fluent in courtroom scenes and what it looks like and the rules, which I think lend my books an air of authenticity. You ever like watch those primetime legal dramas and just shake your head and are like, nothing happens this fast? Yeah, all the time. Yeah, all the time. You know, between, you know, like sometimes I'll think, you know, four prosecutors from Law and Order, they're trying a case every Saturday night. <laughs> How do they do that? Like, I try a case every two years and it's exhausting. And so, yeah. Plus, I, I often think, too, like you look at it from the point of view of like the defendant, you know, it looks like they're arrested, they reject the plea offer, and then they're in trial the next day. But really, it's a year, maybe more of sitting around wondering what it's going to look like and worrying and discovery disputes. So it's some, you know, the look and feel of a trial is nothing like it is on TV. Even when they try to depict it realistically, which, you know, is a 50-50 shot at best. There was a, I shouldn't be laughing when I say this, tragedy that happened here in my town. So two people were crossing the street and drunk driver comes, doesn't stop at a red light, hits them, they die. And letters to the editor start coming in to our local newspaper. How come this person hasn't been arrested yet? Ba -ba 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 -ba. And I think like Law and Order and all those, you know, Dick Wolf type shows. They've just poisoned us to believe that things happen in the legal system overnight when in reality, you know, this guy who finally got arrested months later, he's not going to be in trial for two or three years. But it's just it just goes to show how pop culture has has impacted the way we look at the world, maybe. Right. Right. I mean, you know, like they say, the wheels of justice grind slowly. And so uh, it, it takes much longer, but it's not all that interesting 
watching people wait around for the judge's docket to clear. And so you have to compress it when you're writing about it or fictionalizing it for TV. Fair enough. That would make for maybe a long, a long book or a long, mm -hmm. long 43 minute show. Well, Adam, one of the things I like to do is get to know my guests a little bit more by talking pop culture. So I'm curious, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV, if you had any? Well, so I'm a child of the 70s. And so I watched a lot of detective shows, you know, the old CBS shows running from the, well, I think Rockford Files was not a CBS show, but I'm thinking about the Rockford Files and Gannon and Mannix. And it's a running joke that I have with a close friend of mine where we will constantly say to each other, do you think that guy was older than we are now or younger than we are? <laughs> so I was watching the old Welcome Back Cotter show. Oh, sure. And the principal, if you remember, Mr. Woodman, who at the time I thought was 5,000 years old, so I look him up on Wikipedia and he was, you know, 58 years old when that show was or fish from Barney Miller or things like that. So it's like a running joke with my friend that, you know, were we older or younger than that person? So, he, yeah. So I watched a lot of detective shows, a lot of, you know, the shows the kids watched back then, Happy Days and Starsky and Hutch and Love Boat and stuff like that. Ugh, I'm a Love Boat aficionado. I, I love Boat. I watch it. I started watching rewatching it during the pandemic just because it was so mindless and so predictable but that's kind of what i needed going through those days it's mindless and predictable rockford files by the way one of the greatest theme songs of all time it was just like a synthesizer if i'm remembering correctly you know that was fantastic what's your take on colombo if you have one big colombo fan i watch my wife and i are huge murder mystery people and so we watch a lot of Columbo. We watch all the Agatha Christie's on Britbox. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that there's a Columbo that I haven't seen five times. So a very big fan. Yeah, no, my, my wife and I watch it too. And she's like, we've already seen this one. I'm like, honey, we've seen all of them, you know? Right. But if it's got Robert Culp, I'm watching it, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, I will watch. Or the one with, the, well, there were two with William Shatner, which are right. pure gold. Pure gold, just because of Shatner's overacting. How about music, child of the 70s? What were you listening to back then? I was never that cool about my music, I have to confess. And so I listened to a lot of Billy Joel. I'm trying to think about the Beatles, but I always kind of envied the kids in high school who were listening to or wearing the concert shirts for bands that I didn't even know who they were. And I figured, much cooler and it's one of those funny things where i think about my kids are very into music and now you have access to everything all the time and back then like somebody would come into school wearing like a yes concert shirt i didn't even know what they were and i had no way of knowing how to find who they were i mean i guess i could have gone to the record store and bought a record but but so yeah so it was pretty mainstream kind of stuff i joke that you know you know the tv the movie wayne's world where Mike Myers makes the joke that they handed out Frampton Comes Alive to everybody in the suburbs. That was like the first album I ever bought. So, yes, I very much lived that kind of suburban 1970s existence. That's that, that album cover. I think he's it's got his long hair, 
I'm thinking there's a purplish background and he's got like a Les Paul or something. Right. Um, it's first kind of pink. And I think, you know, it's a double album. So you opened it up. So, yeah. I saw Peter Frampton probably about 10 years ago. He came through town and he looked nothing like that. Nothing like that, but he sounded great. He sounded great. So, and Billy Joel, I saw him last year at Madison Square Garden during one of the residencies. So, man, that he sounds phenomenal. That was it. That was the highlight of my summer was seeing that show. Yeah, we, we just saw Bruce Springsteen in concert and growing up in central New Jersey, that's a commandment that you have to see Bruce Springsteen in concert whenever you can. It's the eleventh. It's the eleventh commandment, or it, it was on one of the tablets that Mel Brooks dropped in the beginning of History of the World, Part One. That's right. So, uh, so yeah. So growing up, you know, it, Bruce Springsteen was from the town over from my town, and I always say to people that when I was in college, people would always ask me, you know, if I've ever seen Bruce Springsteen. But when I was in law school, people would ask me if I've ever seen Bon Jovi, who was also from the town over for me, but different towns. Yeah, there you go. Now, have you ever seen Bon Jovi? Not in concert, but I've seen him in Pottery Bar. No, well, there, there you go. go. That counts. That counts. Um, and last up, Adam, if you could write a letter to your younger self, what would you, and it said, dear younger me, what would you say to the younger Adam? Not to worry so much that it's all going to work out in the end. I think that's the advice that I try to impart to my kids and, and to, you know, take a chance on yourself is the other thing. You know, one of my daughters is an actor and, you know, like being a writer, it's slow going. And I always say to her, you know, take that chance on yourself because it might not work out, but if it works out, it's really rewarding. Uh, so those are the two biggies. There you go. Yeah, that, that, that comes up a lot when I ask people that question. Don't worry so much and take a chance. Because if you don't take a chance on yourself, you know, who, who else is going to? Yep. Yeah. And the worrying part, I think, you know, it's something I tell myself now, and I suppose people must have told me that back then. I just didn't listen the way my kids don't listen when I tell them that. But, you know, it really is the truth. Like the stuff I worried about is so insignificant compared to, you know, what actually matters. Well, the book is Love, Betrayal, Murder. The author is Adam Mitzner. Adam, it was great talking to you on Uncorking a Story. Do you have a website or any social media you want to share with listeners if they want to get in touch with you? I do. My website is adammitzner.com. You can email me at adam at adammitzner.com. I also put my email in the acknowledgments of the book and being blessed with a fairly uncommon name. If you just Google me, you'll find all my social media stuff. There you go. And I'll be sure to include links to all of that in our show notes as well. Adam, thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Thanks so much, Mike. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.